Well, good morning. This morning, we want to talk about the C4 principle. Uh, this is my new book, uh, just published in the last month. Um, the purpose of this book is to articulate a principle that I teach in the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar and other venues as well, but primarily in that seminar about how to find the call of God for your life. How do you discover the purpose of God for your life? How can you discover the reason for your life? How can you discover a meaningful life? Well, this is the heart of this C4 principle. Uh, it's a principle I've been teaching for about 20 years now. Um, it's been through a lot of testing through the process, and I think all principles should be tested for the purpose of understanding, clarification. Um, this is a biblical principle. It's not a man-made principle. It's not my idea. It's something that I discovered in my study of Scripture, exploring the question of destiny and purpose, looking at how people were assigned various assignments historically. And what I discovered was this principle kept popping up, and I realized this seems to be a universal principle. Uh, I call it a timeless universal principle, meaning that it transcends time, it transcends space, it transcends all dimensions of physical reality. It is therefore a, a what I call a TUP, a timeless universal principle. So that's what the topic of this book is about. It's a fairly short book. It's just over a little 100, 100 pages. Uh, it's about 33,000 words if you're interested in a word count. And what we're going to do over the next uh, six months, uh, we're going to go through the book. Uh, we'll take it uh, section by section. So today we'll take the the author's press preface, uh, the introduction, and thinking Christianly. Um, then next week, next month, we'll be talking about the C4 principle uh, explained. We'll be talking about good works, things like that. So these will be uh, these. We just progressively go through the book uh, as we walk our way through uh, my thought process in what I've discovered over the last 25 years in this, you know, unpacking this principle in Scripture. So first, I want to give you the author's preface, which is really, uh, why did I write the book? What was uh, what was going on? What drove me to do this? And please know, this wasn't just something I set out, set out and thought about. This was something that kind of came upon me, and I felt compelled, very compelled to begin to articulate this. So the starting point, of course, goes back in my own history to when I was a young boy, um, I was very enamored with the space program, and I wanted to be an astronaut. And so as I went through my high school years, uh, that was in the early 60s, the space program was coming into uh, prominence in the United States. The president of the United States had challenged the country to go into a, a mode of being very uh, committed to going to the moon and returning safely within the decade. That was President Kennedy's challenge to the country in 1961. So uh, NASA, the new new space agency, was under a lot of pressure. And with that pressure came a lot of money. So a lot of government money went into the space program and we started launching vehicles like crazy. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of learning along the way, a lot of accidents. Um, there was only one accident that actually caused a human death, and that was uh, Apollo 1, which was 1967.
but along the way, early in the program, they had a lot of accidents associated with uh, launch vehicle problems and uh, rocket problems, those kinds of issues. So it's in that context that I came along. I uh, entered college in 1965 and I majored in physics uh, because that's what I was told. If you want to be in the space program, you need to be a scientist and physics is the best field. So I went into that. I also enjoyed physics and I discovered along the way I had a lot of favor to do it. Um, when I first, my first three classes in physics were all large classes. It was, it was basically introduction to, to physics for scientists and for engineers and mathematicians. So a lot of bright people uh, in these classes and in all that, I was able to distinguish myself and rise to the top and uh, was recognized by the professor, a professor there in particular who commissioned me uh, to a degree in physics, which that was uh, extremely helpful. Uh, I never really saw myself as all that capable but discovered in this process that I, I was able to do some uh, fairly advanced work. Uh, I made the, the dean's list and um, was given a, a, a lot of favor with the faculty at the physics department. They, they, they made me a grader, uh, which uh, that's pretty unusual. Used, you know, that, that's pretty much reserved for the best of the students. Uh, generally the senior year, if you do really well in, the, in a field, like physics, uh, you get invited to be grading. So I graded for one of my key professors, the one that commissioned me, I graded for him. That was a great privilege to do that. Uh, then I got a research assistantship to go into graduate school. I continued at the same school. I wound up getting three degrees there, all in physics. So that was all driven by my desire to be part of the space program. By the time I got out, the space program was, was uh, being basically uh, defunded because once we landed on the moon, we we fulfilled President Kennedy's objective, and there were other priorities in the country. So the space program began to be um, defunded from what it had been funded. It wasn't wasn't completely stopped, but it was just slow. It, it was slowing down, and the program wasn't you know wasn't needing new people. So um, there was a glut of people being trained to be part of it, and so this glut of people, I was one of thousands and thousands of people, who knows how many people that was were trained in science and math and engineering to be part of that and were not needed any longer. So we all wound up doing different things. Uh, I wound up in a, in a research role at um, a major a company here in Dallas for a couple of years. And then the economy got really soft. And when it got soft, I wound up uh, losing my job and uh, was laid off, and there, here you are, a, a very highly trained, highly degreed person in a very slow economy uh, with a specialty that's only needed by about uh, 15 different, you know, locations in the country. Uh, faculty positions were almost impossible to come by. I remember applying for one and discovering I was one of 500 applicants for a position. Uh, so it was a very difficult time to stay uh, in your profession. So I wound up in the family business, which I grew up doing you know, things in the family business. I already knew a lot about it. Uh, it wasn't a difficult transition, but it was very humbling because I felt like I was going to go on to do something more than what the family business was. So anyway, I spent some time there in the family business. And after about 10 years in the family business, I think I made whatever contribution I was supposed to make and wound up um, getting people coming to me and wanting me to consult with them. And I, and I asked them, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we want you to bring 
you know, your, your mindset, your wisdom to our company and do for our company, what you did for your family business. They saw the family business prosper. The family business really was fledgling in the early part um, of, of the seventies. And when I joined in 74, uh, the family business was really, you know, it's a fairly small uh, organization by the mid eighties. It had grown substantially uh, and had expanded its capabilities and had gone had gone to much more sophisticated technical work in the, in the contracting business. So people saw that and they, they attributed that to me, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but they, they wanted me to come and give them counsel. So literally, uh, my consulting practice happened in about a period of a couple of months because three different people came to me and said the same thing. As far as I know, they were all independent. They didn't know each other. All they said was, you know, we saw what you did with the family business. We want you to come and advise us. Well, that was uh, that was the start of my consulting practice. That felt a little bit better to me rather than just staying in the family business. I felt like I was uh, a little more prestigious, maybe you would say, a little more academic because uh, I'm now a consultant. Uh, so did that for a few years and um, was doing uh, consulting to you know based on what I knew. Uh, I had done uh, a little little study and I'd read some books. I had been around some some training, some seminars, those kinds of things. My dad had taught me, uh, I don't, I think a lot of what's called common sense. I just kind of sensed how to do things. So that's how, that was my approach to consulting. Then in 1990, I met Dennis Peacock. Um, he just came out of the blue. My, my church invited him to come and do a seminar. He came to do a seminar and he started talking about Christianity in a way that I had never heard it talked about. And you have to understand, I've been a, a Christian since I was 11. And that I had, uh, I had started out uh, after, you know, while I was in graduate school studying under a prominent theologian, even though I was in graduate school, I was studying theology. So not only was I, you know, in graduate school, I was also taking Greek and studying systematic theology at the same time. So um, my wife didn't see me very often because I was in the books all the time. Uh, by day, I was in physics. At night, I was talking, I was studying theology and Greek and and uh, dot basic Christian doctrine. So that was going on in the early 70s. So by the 1990s, I'd already gone through a lot of theological training in addition to my formal training at the university. So I meet Dennis Peacock and uh, he starts talking about Christianity in ways that I had never heard before. And I had plenty of exposure to seminary professors. In fact, the church we attended in Dallas throughout the, the mid-70s into the mid-80s, uh, was, was had a number of seminary professors who attended the church and taught in the church. So it was a good bit of training there that I had a chance to go through. So I'm hearing things from Dennis I never heard from these professors. I, I was stunned at this, and he asked me a question that really, really shocked me. And that question was, uh, where do you get the wisdom that you use in your consulting practice? You know, he... He was very clear, a consultant only sells one thing, and that's wisdom. Wisdom is the skill to live in God's universe. So where do you get that wisdom? I mean, you're a consultant, that's what you sell is wisdom. So I started thinking about that. I thought, wow, I don't know. I just, it's, you know, the wisdom I have came from my dad, from my common sense, my experience, books, seminars. That's pretty much it. That's where it's come from. And then he said, have you ever thought about what the Bible has to say about organizational behavior? 
organizational development, organizational leadership and management, financial management. He's listing off these things and I'm saying, wow, I've never vetted those things from a Christian worldview. Even though part of my training was Christian worldview training. I had a course in worldview training with one of the seminary professors. It was a very rigorous course. We went through Francis Schaeffer's works, which if you know Francis Schaeffer, he was one of the great worldview thinkers of that time. So I was really shocked by all this, and it put me into, I would say, into a mode of, of really searching out, what is it? What is it about Christianity and the marketplace, about the workplace, about business and finance and public policy? What am I? What have I missed? And I realized that I had been largely trained with dualistic thinking. I put Christianity kind of in a box. It applies to me personally, to my church, my family, and that's pretty much it. Everything else is the purview of, you know, basically being pragmatic thinking, which was it was given over to humanism. And I realized that has got to be a lie. That cannot be the right way to approach work, finance, economics, business, public policy. None of that. You, you've got to bring Christian thinking to all of it. So that's what he brought, what Dennis challenged me to do is be holistic. Think about the reality that Jesus is Lord of everything and what that means. So that led me into a decade-long search. By Throughout that decade, I was attending conferences, reading books, talking to people, making notes, trying to, to grapple with how to think about these areas that I never thought about from a Christian worldview. By the end of the decade, early part of the 21st century, my clients are saying to me, wow, you've changed. You've got a whole new vocabulary. There are these new principles you're telling us about. Where's all this coming from? And so I realized that through the 90s, God was transforming me as he was redefining truth, giving me what his view of the areas that I didn't never filtered through a Christian worldview. He was giving me his view of those areas. So that led me to writing my book, Beyond Babel, which is about how to build organizations from a Christian worldview. It led to seminars. And all of this, all of this, you know, is what set me up then for what came next. And what came next was now I had to begin to communicate what I, what I began to see afresh through the challenge of Dennis Peacock of how to, think, how to think as a Christian in every area of life. So that's, uh, that's the backdrop. That's why I wrote the book. This book is part of my journey of discovering the call of God on my life and how to think Christianly about everything. So the introductory chapter is all about now the backdrop of the C4 book, the C4 principle. So I start out with some predicates, understanding what are the great questions. You have to understand that we, when you, you wake up as a human being, three, four, five, six years old, you don't have a clue what's going on. You just are, you're alive. You begin to have consciousness and that type of thing. At some point you begin to ask, where did I come from? And you ask, why am I here? And what's it all about? And you begin to ask questions, whether you're very conscious of it or not, varying levels of consciousness of these questions. If you go to, go to advanced education, you're more likely to ask these questions. But ultimately, you realize there's something wrong with the universe. You've got sin and death. You realize, I'm going to die. 
and you're asking yourself, okay, that's a big reality. Okay. And along the way, a lot of stuff's going on that's bad. So you realize that there's a curse on you about sin and death. You you're bound to sin, whether you want to admit it or not, you are, you are de- your default is going to be to sin. That doesn't mean you can't do some good things. You, you can do some good things, but overall you're bound to sin. You can't choose not to sin. You can choose to try not to sin. You may have a little success, but eventually you will fail. Everybody knows that everybody fails. That means we ultimately we capitulate to sin and with that is a bondage on all of us and we will all die physically. That's another bondage. We can't help that. We can't stop that. So it begs a big question and that is what's the solution to this? This is a huge problem. This is a plague on humanity. So we need a, an answer to that. Of course, the answer is found in Christ. That is the only answer. So that is a, that's the first question you're going to have to really r- wrestle with, but there's a question after it. That question after it is, okay, once I've come to Christ and I have an answer to the question of sin and death, I've got another vexing question. Why am I here? What's the point? What is God trying to do in and through my life? And so that is what this book is about. The C4 principle is a principle to help you discover why you exist, why you're here and what God wants to do in and through your life. The predicate for all of this is we have a God who's very personal. If you've been trained in worldview thinking, you know there is no other, none of the other major worldviews, and there are five basic worldviews that dominate the world. In other words, 90% of the world will adopt one of these worldviews. It's Christianity atheism or secular humanism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. That's the top five. 90% of the world is in one of those categories. If you want to go to the top six, you would have the pay, you know, the Chinese folk religion. That's probably another 4% or so. You'd have 94% of the world in those six worldviews. None of those worldviews have a personal God except Christianity. That's very important. A personal God takes personal interest in you, meaning you have distinct reason for existing. You've been created with intent and purpose. So if that is true, if we have a God who works that way, a creator who creates with intent and purpose, then the question is, would he give you guidance into how to find that purpose? And if so, what would that be? What would that guidance be? And what is the purpose of God really for you? Is it just limited to church as the dualist would say today? When I talk about dualists, I'm talking about people that limit the reality that Jesus is Lord of all. We are hopefully going to be holistic in our study. Holism says Jesus is Lord of all. No limitations. He's Lord of all. So we have to get very clear uh, whether we're going to be dualistic which is the popular view, or we're going to be holistic, which is not as popular. People give lip service to holism, but they remain in their dualism. And that means they view basically a dualist says that God is concerned about your personal life and church work, and that's it. A holist says, no, Jesus is Lord of everything. God has a will for everything, not only in the church, outside the church. 
everything about your life, not just your personal life, your family life, your church life, your workplace life, your community life, everything God has a will. That's holism. So we're going to approach this holistically. And another question that's big as you begin to explore, you know, why you're here, people want to come up with one answer and then settle it. Like, okay, I've answered the question. I'm here to do X. Well, sadly, God doesn't seem to work that way. He seems to have made the process of discovering your purpose a process, a lifelong process, a process that continually unfolds throughout life. Certainly, as you get older, you see more and more of what his purpose is, and you get more and more clarity about what the rest of your life will be. But all along the way, that purpose is being unfolded. This book is about helping you understand a key principle to help you walk out the purpose of God for your life and do it according to his will and his ways in his timing and for his glory. So that's the introduction. Now, the, the next chapter is how to think Christianly. So we're going to, this is the, the predicate to really jumping into the detailed discussion about what a Christian, what the C4 principle is all about. So we have to recognize it's very important that you understand the need to think Christianly. Now, just take this little illustration. Suppose that you're in this boat like these two people. You're in the middle of the ocean. You can't see any land. Furthermore, it's cloud covered, so you can't see any stars or the sun, any external references. You've got telescopes, and suppose you have a map. And you kind of know where you are. So suppose you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You have on your map. There you see, okay, I'm in the middle of this thing called the Pacific Ocean. And I know that if I can get to land, there's food and water and everything I need to survive. If I stay in this boat and don't get to land, I'm going to die. So you want to find land. But you don't know exactly where you are. So you don't know which way to go. You don't know if your telescope is looking north, south, east, or west, or something in between. You don't know what you're looking at. How do you make a choice about which way to go? How do you define what is the right way versus the wrong way? You've got to have a reference point. You need something to guide you. You need to be able to locate yourself on the map and have an external reference point now to navigate from that location to a destination that you believe will bring you life. So that's the imagery I want you to get here to set up the issue of what is going to guide you. What will be your compass in life? Everyone has to have a compass. You can't, you can't self-navigate. You do not have an internal compass to guide you. You, well, you've got a little bit of one. You have a conscience, which is helpful. It's not a profound compass. It's a very crude compass. It guides you to simple things like don't kill. You know, don't, don't commit adultery. Uh, be respectful of other people's property. Honor your parents. Those are simple things, but that's not much of a compass. You need a profound compass that can give you precise direction so you know where you are and you can recognize the right path from the wrong path. So that's the key in life. Well, how do you do that? Well, you're either going to choose to try to self-define, be your own compass, or you're going to look for something external. Scripture tells us there is only one external compass that's credible, and that is the Word of God. 
You've got to learn to be guided by the external compass of the Word of God. It's the only thing that's viable. It's the only thing that's credible. It gives you the principles that you need to guide your life, to choose what is right versus what is wrong. A Christian worldview provides timeless, universal principles that govern the universe. I call that TUP. You'll hear me referring to TUP. That's what I'm referring to. Timeless, universal principles. TUP is most profoundly revealed in the Bible and secondarily in creation as understood, subordinated to the Bible. You can't find TUP well by studying creation independent of the Bible. You find it well by studying creation subordinated to the Bible, meaning that you approach creation understanding that it was created by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the undeniable reality. If you don't start there, you will be confused. You will be distorted in your thinking. You will wind up like like uh, Charles Darwin did in his theory of evolution, coming up, concocting a crazy theory, not based on the Bible. In fact, his theory of evolution, evolution was, was invented clearly and consciously trying to reject the Bible and explain creation some other way other than it was created. So the fundamental premise of the theory of evolution is erroneous. When your premise is wrong, your conclusions from that premise will be wrong. So we have to get back to the undeniable reality that Jesus, the creator, is Lord of all. And to understand his creation, you have to discover his tup and live congruent with his tup. And that tup is best revealed first in scripture and then in creation as subordinated under scripture. So that's the Christian thinking that you have to bring to this. That is what it means to think Christianly. So as we go through this, we will be assuming, I will be assuming that you understand this basic principle that the Bible is our moral compass for all decisions. Not just when you think of moral, keep in mind, moral is any decision about what's right and what's wrong. And continually through life, we're making those decisions. What's right, what's wrong? The Bible's got to be our guide, always be our guide. It's not just a matter of whether or not murder is right or wrong or adultery is right or wrong. Those are certainly moral decisions, but it is much more than that. It is every issue of life. What your career should be, where you should work, how you should think about money, how should you use money, what car should you drive, what vacation should you take, how many children should you have? Who should your friends be? What part of your what part of the Christian community do you connect with? You just go on and on and on. There's many, many questions in life. You have to answer these every day. Every day you're making ethical decisions that require a, a compass that tells you what is right and what is wrong. Now, there are some things that are very clear. They're, they're unambiguous. They're unequivocal. Those are very clear, you just obey those. There are other things that are equivocal. They're ambiguous. They're not quite as clear. The scripture might actually say different things about it. And you're saying, well, which, what do we do? 
you've got to learn how to do ethical reflection to get to truth. But your standard has always got to be scripture, going back to what the scriptures say. My spiritual father, my first spiritual father, gave me this principle that I think is powerful. He said, I try to connect everything that I possibly can in my life to scripture. I want to be regulated by scripture to the greatest degree possible. And that's obviously a very challenging task. There's many things in life that we don't necessarily think that God would care about. Does God care about how you change a flat tire? You know, that seems like something. Well, why would God worry about that? God cares. God has a will and God has a ways. And we have to understand his will and his ways. We have to understand about rubber that he made and about air pressure that he made and how you can create, you actually can produce a tire that you can, it will hold pressure. And what happens when there's a leak in the rubber? You've got to understand these are things that God has made. God has a will for us. And we've got to always see God's universe, even on incidental things, you've got to see his hand in everything. He's always got a will. He's always got a ways. And if you have a flat tire, it's no accident. Some way, somehow, God is in that thing to do something he wants done in and through us. So this is how we learn to think Christianly. So may God give us grace to take on that mindset and walk in that reality so we can truly be the people he called us to be and do what he's called us to do and serve his purpose in our lives. This is the way to find your destiny your purpose. This is the way to have a meaningful life. So may God give us grace to learn to live and think Christianly in Jesus' name. Amen.